Welcome back to the Snowmobiling Podcast. This is your host, Gordon Mann. Today's episode, we're going to have Brian Nelson. Brian is the president of the USXC, United States Cross Country Racing Association. Brian uh, has taken over that uh, position and uh, has got the daunted task of uh, organizing the uh, resurrected I-500 uh, snowmobile race. And uh, Brian is a uh, inductee into the uh, uh, Snowmobile Hall of Fame. And co-hosting with me today is uh, Hal Armstrong from Snowboard Canada Magazine and Snowbear Television. So, look forward to talking to Brian. Brian's got a lot to talk about uh, his past racing career. He's a past winner of the I-500 twice, I might add, and uh, his uh, career with Articat uh, Industries. So, uh, first, let's have this message from the intrepid snowmobiler, Craig Nicholson. Hello, I'm Craig Nicholson, the Intrepid Snowmobiler, here to go snowmobiling with the Ontario Federation of Snowmobile Clubs. If you meet an oncoming groomer on the trail, pull over to the right and stop until the groomer operator signals for you to pass. If you catch up to a groomer going the same way you are, slow down behind it and wait until the operator sees you and finds a safe place to let you by. Until next time, find out more at IntrepidSnowmobiler.com. That's IntrepidSnowmobiler.com. Okay, so on the line we have uh, Brian Nelson and Hal Armstrong. How you doing, Brian? Terrific. Thank yeah, you. glad glad to have you on the show today. Uh, uh, Hal and I are, are big fans of this race, so uh, uh, we're really interested in, uh, in in this event that you have coming up, uh, the uh, the I five hundred. Uh, Hal, what do you got to say for uh, Brian? Okay, uh, thanks, Brian, for uh, for uh, doing this, and uh, just for our listeners out there, uh, um, we would, we're going to start out with uh, maybe Brian just kind of recapping who he is and uh, what his past uh, racing career was. Uh, uh, Brian is a member of the Snowmobile Racing Hall of Fame, so to, uh, to, to get into that, uh, you have to have uh, you know, been a pretty successful uh, uh, racer, which Brian was. So, Brian, why don't we start out, uh, you know, how you got involved with snowmobiles, and, uh, and then just maybe a, a quick recap on, uh, on uh, you know, your racing uh, experiences in the 70s. Okay. Well, I um, started racing, actually, I think I went to my first race when I was 12. And, uh, you know, when I was a young man living on a little farm outside of Wilmer, Minnesota, my dad brought home a a Johnson snowmobile. This was in, I think, 1966. And I rode the thing all the time. You know, there wasn't much to do back then. Of course, we didn't have computers. We didn't have Facebook. And and, uh, there just wasn't, uh, you know, a lot of recreational activities, you know, for a young kid. And I remember I rode the Johnson in the summer out in our alfalfa field, and it built up with chaff underneath by the muffler, and it caught on fire one night, and it burned to the ground out in the middle of the alfalfa field, and I was just devastated. And uh, winter came, and uh, didn't have a snowmobile, and my dad had uh, turned a claim in on our homeowner's policy, and he got enough money, and he gave me the check, and he said, you can go buy a snowmobile. So I went and bought a little 300 single-cellar skidoo, you know, and I rode the thing to school. I rode it to work. I mean, I rode the thing. I just wore it out. Yeah. And one day, a neighbor um, who had a son about my age came to me, and he said, there's a little race over in Grove City, Minnesota. He said, why don't you and Jerry go over there? I'll, I'll haul you over there. And so he did, and I believe I was 12 years old. And we entered, and, of course, nobody checked the ages back then, you know, and there was no insurance issues or legal issues. And we raced and had a great time and did well. And and uh, pretty soon, old Irv Tollickson was taking us to races every weekend. And one thing led to another, and we got better at it. And, you know, we were young and hard riders and uh, didn't know any different like all the kids are. Uh, you know, pretty soon I did well enough 
uh, the first few years that a group of businessmen in the town of Wilmer got together and formed a corporation, and they called it the Spirit of Wilmer. And uh, it was just a, a huge boost for a young man that wanted to race because all of a sudden I had some money, and uh, they would buy me snowmobiles and parts and pay some entry fees. And I remember the first year that they uh, got involved was 1972, and we bought a brute that year. And uh, Brute, uh, of course, snowmobiles were made just north of us, about 20 miles north of us in Brute, Minnesota. And I got a lot of help from uh, Jan Headland and the old Players people that were, that were there at Brute, and they were uh, a big help. And we did real well with the Brutes, and uh, I was running uh, extremely well in the I-500 uh, that year, and I was coming into uh, Walker, and I think I was leading the race at the time, and the crankshaft broke, you know, which happened to a lot of engines back in those days, and so I was out, but um, actually my first I-500 was um, uh, 72 on a Skidoo, and then 73 I ran the Brute, but uh, well, that was kind of my start, and uh, it just kind of, you know, snowballed from there, you might say. So how did you get picked up by the uh, the John Deere uh, in 76 when they had that kind of super team? Well, how that happened was uh, in 19, uh, for the 75 season, uh, the Spirit of Wilmer group uh, purchased a John Deere snowmobile for us to race. And, you know, at the time, I figured, oh, my God, what are we going to do with this thing? You know, because John Deere wasn't noted for having a competitive product. And so we weren't real excited about it. But as it turned out, it was a great move because the 340S in 1975 was a competitive snowmobile and was a very good machine. And uh, so we ran that, and uh, I did very well that winter. I got second in one big race. Actually, I lost a race, a uh, 200-mile race, by one second. And uh, hard to believe. You know, I remember my mechanic at the end of the race, Hubert, he said, Brian, couldn't you have made up one second somewhere? Yeah. I said, Hubert, I held that thing wide open for 200 miles. <laughs> who, uh, who, who was on your team that year, uh, Brian? Pardon? Who was on your team that year? Who, who, was, uh, who was part of that, the John Deere team? Well, in 76, when we went to John Deere, we had uh, six drivers and six mechanics. And uh, that year uh, it was Bobby Enns from Canada, of course, and Ron Reamer from Steinbeck. And uh, it was myself from the States, John Carlson, and then Craig Knudsen, who actually is a farmer now not too far from where I live here. So there were six drivers. We had six mechanics. We had a coach and a team manager by the name of Al Anderson, who uh, was a terrific guy. Al was a uh, uh, retired, uh, I believe he was an Army Ranger instructor at one time, and then he was a high school coach, and his teams were always competitive and did very well. And um, But he was hired by John Deere to uh, get us into shape and run the team. So, uh, But we started, actually we started in June of 1975 is, is uh, when we uh, went to work for John Deere. When I say we, um, when, when John Deere contacted us after the 75 winter, which uh, went well on the 340S, and that's when I was actually riding the Spirit of Wilmer sled in 75. And, um, you know, like I said, we, we lost at one race by a second. It was a big event, and uh, I was leading the I-500 the last day, and I was 30 miles from uh, St. Paul, and the sled just, I destroyed it. You know, I just rode it way too hard trying to win the race. And... Uh, there again, if we would have had the resources, we would have put new skid frames in every day like the factory teams and probably uh, would have made it and probably would have won the race in 75, but we didn't, and, um, you know, the rest is history. But yeah. So then, of course, Deere came to us in June of uh, 
75 and asked if if uh, if we would be part of their team. And there again, we being Hubert Fixon and Larry Swanson, who were my mechanics and uh, good friends and just uh, you know fabulous mechanics. And then when we went to uh, Enduro Team Deer, they actually took Larry and gave him to uh, Bobby Enns, which was uh, turned out to be a great deal, you know, for both of them because Larry and Bobby got along great. And then Hubert and I stayed together and have ever since. You know, we're still good friends and do a lot of projects together. But but anyway, um, yeah, it was full time job. We started in June. Um, I remember they. Uh, they said you better start training because when you uh, get up to Breezy Point, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna work you hard. So yeah, we started so running. Really, you know, when you think about it, I'm uh, 76. That team, I mean, for you guys to get in shape ahead of time, it's it's you know, it's pretty similar to what you see today with the snowcross racers. Yeah, you guys were ahead of your time. You know? Circuit training, yeah, you're way ahead of your time. Well, that's correct. You know, back then. Most of the good racers were field test drivers for the manufacturers, yeah. uh, you know, people that had thousands of miles on and were in shape and and knew knew how to ride ditches up in northern Minnesota. And uh, but Deer, you know, took that concept one step further, and they took drivers that were not, you know, real known drivers and uh, gave us basically all the ingredients that we needed to be successful. Bob Carlson, who was uh, senior VP of Deer at that time, uh, was phenomenal. He uh, he was just a, a very unique uh, guy that knew how to get the most out of people, and he knew how to motivate, and he knew what it took to put a successful program together. Yeah. And uh, he saw to it that we had, of course, a great coach. We had the facilities, we had the equipment, the helmets, the suits, the gear, the motivation, everything we needed um, to be successful. And I remember Bob would. Uh, they had a Citation jet. Bob had his own jet. He'd fly from Moline up to Brainerd uh, every Monday morning, and he'd land, and he his pilot's name was Maury, and they would drive over to the race shop, and uh, actually, we were at Breezy Point Resort. Deer rented Breezy Point Resort for the winter, and uh, we lived there, and we had a cook, cooked all our meals. We had a doctor that checked us all the time. We, um, hold on one second. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Gene. We had uh, everything that we needed. You know, they gave us uh, 12 vitamins before each meal. They called them vitamins. I don't know what they were, but um, <laughs> they sure made us perky. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but they probably wouldn't pass pass inspection Drug nowadays. But, yeah. but, you know, so uh, let's see. Getting back to Bob, you know, he would, every Monday morning, he'd fly into Brainerd, and he would... Uh, We'd go in the meeting room, and he would never once stand up in front of the group and say, here's what I think you should do. He would say, what can I do to help this team be successful? And I remember one time we were having brake problems. You know, the sleds were heavy, and uh, the brakes were cable brakes, and we were complaining about our brakes. Bob gets on the phone and uh, makes a call to Kelsey Hayes in Ohio. He runs Maury back to the airport. Maury jumps in the jet flies to Ohio. Two hours later, he's back with some of the best brake engineers in the country. By the next weekend, we had brakes. Incredible. Yeah, uh, hydraulic brakes retrofitted. Yeah, we went to a good self-adjusting hydraulic brake with a mechanical puck and or a, a, a metallic puck. And a few weeks later, we have belt problems. You know, Bob brings Maury to the airport. He flies to Denver, picks up a bunch of Gates engineers. A couple hours later, they're back in Brainerd. They figured out you know what a lot of our problems were. 
And, I mean, it didn't totally cure our belt problems, but it made us raceable. You know, it made us uh, so that we could actually finish a race and uh, and be competitive. And so it was whatever it took, you know. Bob was a man that uh, made things happen, and, and uh, you know, he was the the guy that put the team together. It was his idea, and, and he uh, was the driving force behind all that. So, so the result was uh, John Deere. I mean, they won the uh, they won the Winnipeg to St. Paul. You you won the race, and of course that was uh, I think the only was Yvonne Duhamel in '72 was the only non Arctic Polaris uh, sled to ever win that race. So to win in Arctic Cap Polaris's backyard was uh, was a big achievement and probably uh, raised a few eyebrows with them. Well, yeah, it, it uh, you know it raised some eyebrows and it, it raised some dander and <laughs> it uh, raised a lot of things that day. Probably raised the level of competition too. You would think, you know. Well, it made deer, it put deer on the map, you know, and that's what they wanted to do. You know, back in those days, to win the I-500 um, was worth millions to a snowmobile manufacturer. It made you credible. It made yeah. your sled acceptable to the general public, and that's why they raced. And um, but we did, you know, we had eight major races that winter, and I won three, got second in three, and uh, one of the ones I got second in, one of my teammates beat me, which was Bobby Enns, and uh, so the the deer team had a, had a tremendous year. You know, it, it uh, all of a sudden deer was there, and they um, they were a force to be reckoned with, and um, yeah, it really kickstarted the brand because after that, with the uh, the liquefiers and their and their new uh, sleds, uh, I mean, they they really became a legitimate uh, competitor in, exactly. the, in the marketplace. And that's you know that's what you had to do back in those days. You had to go win races, and uh, and deer, of course, big company, successful company, and a lot of good people like Bob Carlson there, who that that made that company what it was. And and uh, you know we were. We were extremely motivated. Uh, you know, it, to me, it was uh, you know it was an opportunity of of a lifetime, and I wasn't going to let it slip by. And uh, every time I got on that sled and they dropped the flag, I was going to make something happen. And uh, but I mean, you couldn't help but not do it that way because you know we we had everything we needed. There was no excuses not to be successful. Right. And, so in '77, uh, you uh, you left John Deere and uh, and moved to Articat. If how did that come about, and why would you leave Deer if they had such a good program? Well, what happened there, we uh, we worked on development of what they called the Liquidator Two in the spring of '76, and it was a much lighter version of the Liquidator. Uh, we tested different engines, uh, skid frames, and uh, so we were pretty convinced that we were going to ride the Liquidator Two in the winter of 1977. And about in uh, it was in May, I believe, May or June, uh, John Deere announced that they weren't going to build it because the lead times weren't long enough and they hadn't done enough testing. And we were, you know, Hubert and I were really disappointed, you might say, because um, when I was a young man growing up, my dad would always go up to Articat and, and he'd buy old race sleds, one- and two-year-old sleds. He'd bring them home and say, here you go. And, uh, you know, that's how I learned to drive in the rough because we never had any speed. You know, we never had the best sleds, so you had to learn to ride in the bumps. And and we get to the oval courses, and we get our butts kicked. So when Deer announced we were going to run your old equipment, I knew that you know the equipment was the snowmobiles were evolving dramatically back then, and I never thought we would be competitive on a year old sled. So we were really disappointed, and uh, we were being uh, kind of uh, 
courted a little bit, you might say, by Bombardier Antarctic Cat, and we met with uh, Warren Dahls from Bombardier and, and uh, decided not to go that direction. Then Arctic one day sent a plane down and picked us up, Hubert and I up, and flew us up there and said, uh, you know, we're building a new race shop. We'll give you this section here. We'll give you the west side. Uh, you can go to the Ford dealer, pick out a new pickup, um, and go into town and find an apartment. We'll rent you an apartment. You know, there was basically whatever you needed. Wow. And, uh, you know, we looked at their sled, and, and I could, you know, we we thought that uh, we, I wasn't sure Deer was really going to be in it for the long run, and I knew Arctic was. And my dad had been an Arctic Cat dealer back in the late 60s for a few years, so we had some connections there. So we just thought that that was the right move to make at the time. And after the first year, we weren't so sure about it because the 77 Cross Country Cat was not a very good race sled. And the deer, they, they did put a bunch of kits on the liquidator, and actually it was very competitive. Bobby won a bunch of races, and I'm sure we could have too. So the deer actually, the deer team did well in 77 and, uh, um, you know, won some races. And, and the sled, as it turned out, was competitive, uh, you know. Uh, so we were kind of wrong on that point. But uh, but the move to Arctic over the years was a good move. Um, you know, we developed relationships, and, uh, you know, we still I still have, things I do with Arctic Cat, and um, it was uh, a tremendous move in the long run. So 78, uh, I believe it was 78 when you won with Arctic, the I-500 again? Correct. Yeah, okay. So yeah. then after... So basically, yep. go ahead. Um, well, the 78 uh, Cat, um, were you were you like a full-time employee then, Brian, with, with Arctic right through, or would once the spring came you would go back home and then, and then return in the fall? Well, we were we were employed year round. I mean, we took some time off in the summer because in the winter, you know, we were seven days a week, twelve, fourteen hours a day. So then they would let us take time off in the summer to go home. But uh, basically, what happened there in '77, about halfway through the winter, when we realized that '77 Cross Country Cat uh, was not an impressive race sled, Hubert and I went to Roger Skyme and we were complaining about the sled. And Roger basically just looked at the two of us and said, "Well, boys, if you think you can do better." You designed the 78 race sled, and uh, I don't know. I think he had, uh, I mean, we looked at each other and like, oh, boy, now we oh, got ourselves. <laughs> oh, 23, 24, you know. <laughs> okay. And, uh, but Hubert, Hubert was, you know, still is and was an extremely talented guy. You know, Hubert uh, had his degree in engineering and uh, very, very great mechanical engineer. He's one of the best in the country, and, there's nothing Hubert couldn't figure out or do. Is he still with Arctic? Oh. What's that? Is Hubert still with Arctic Cat or no? No, Hubert and I stayed together all through the years. Hubert always farmed um, okay. down just south of Wilmer here and still does. But uh, uh, Larry Swanson, who went with us to John Deere, stayed at John Deere for his entire career and just retired there a year or so ago. So, um, And we had that same opportunity. You know, After we won the 576, Bob Carlson came to Hubert and I and he said, you boys got a job for life with John Deere, wherever you want to go and whatever you want to do. And, you know, I look back at that once in a while and say, God, you know, I could be retired today living on a nice pension if I would have yeah. done that. <laughs> but uh, I didn't want to sit in a office somewhere with a suit and tie and make drawings and uh, design stuff. Uh, you know, I wanted to ride snowmobile. I wanted to race. And uh, I wanted to be my own boss. And, and Hubert had his farm, and he kind of wanted to do that too. So we, um, even though it was a, it was a tremendous offer, Larry took him up on it, and he stayed there, and Hubert and I uh, moved on, you know. 
but uh, and made the best of it, and uh, you know we're happy we did. But anyway, uh, but 1977, you know, we went to Skyme and and uh, who was president of engineering, and he gave us the, the go ahead, and, uh, and that was the first year of a horsepower limit. We had a 45 plus or minus 10 percent horsepower limit going into the 78 season, so you know we knew that uh, it, it, you didn't pay to work on engines anymore. And work on speed. We might as well work on suspension. So, uh, and the '77 cross country cat was uh, not a good ditch sled. You know, I mean, it, the suspensions in those days were pretty archaic. There virtually was none. Yeah. And uh, so we we started using the shock absorbers. You know, we designed uh, a bunch of kits for the sled for the Altigre. We had a rear suspension kit, a front suspension kit, a brake kit, windshield seat. We had all these different kits. So that's and, when you went with uh, the external shock on the. On the tunnel, out. yeah, we were kind of the first snowmobile to really use shock absorbers. See, yeah. uh, you know, back in those days, you know, a lot of the snowmobile uh, suspension engineers didn't really grab the concept of how you had to use a shock absorber. And shocks were just basically along for the ride. You know, the uh, the ski shocks back then were maybe uh, traveling an inch, inch and a half, and they really weren't doing much. And uh, you know, the the theory at that time was, is when, you know, we'd hit stuff so hard with them old leaf spring sleds, we'd go over backwards. And uh, I was asking a suspension engineer at Arctic one day why that was happening. He said, well, it's the springs rebounding. You know, and I, Hubert looked at me with kind of a disbelief in his eyes. And I remember a few weeks later, we were in the apartment one night, and Hubert uh, was in his bedroom, and he yelled at me, and he said, he said, that can't happen. You know, he figured it out in his head that, uh, uh, that 600-pound snowmobile with that 150-pound rider on it, uh, there's no way those 250-pound rate springs could blow that sled over backwards when they on a rebound. They're, the energy wasn't there. They didn't have enough energy in them to uh, to do what they were doing. So the next day, we went into town, and we rented a high-speed video camera, which was an early VHS. This was a great, big, clumsy thing. Yep. And Hubert got in the Ford pickup at Engineering, and I rode the sled to St. Hilaire and back and put it on the tail about six, eight times. And uh, we went up in Engineering, and we, we ran the thing on the, shined it on a sheet on the wall, you know, played it back. And here the sled was about ready to go over backwards, about six, eight feet in the air, and the springs hadn't even rebounded yet. And the engineers were like, what the heck? You know, it just blew their theory right out of the water. Yeah. And Hubert says, wait a minute, I'll show you what's going on. He went down to shop and he came back with two hammers and he hit them together and he said here's what's happening and basically what it amounts to you have a wall made out of material that will absorb no energy and you have a ball made out of that same material and you roll that ball into that wall if you have a perfect elastic collision meaning neither object absorbs any energy that energy will go back into that ball when it hits that wall and return to the exact same spot it started at yeah so that's what was happening yeah i mean those springs, see, a spring doesn't dissipate energy. A spring just returns whatever you put into it. Yeah. And uh, the only thing that will dissipate energy, is, of course, is a shock absorber. So we knew that we had to start using the shocks more, and the only way to do it was with linkage. So, you know, we developed a rear skid frame that was extremely light. And we took all the steel other than the front arm under it and threw it away. And uh, we mounted the shocks on the outside of the tunnel and put them at a two-to-one ratio so it was linear, and uh, see, the old shocks and the skid frames were uh, were mounted at an angle. Of course, as the skid went up, the shock flattened out. There was no pull rods on those old ones, and there was no geometry. And of course, you maybe had two inches of shock travel, and the last three fourths of suspension travel, you didn't hardly have any because it got degressive. 
Yeah. And you needed just the opposite. You wanted progressive and not degressive. And there was no shock in the front arm of those old sleds. And, of course, the ski shocks weren't doing much. And so our goal then was to start using shocks. And uh, so we went from three inches of rear travel on that 78 to seven inches. And the shocks were linear and at a two-to-one ratio. And then we did the, we made the lever action on the skis. We made that shackle on the front, made a Berlin eye in the front of the leaf. So we went from an inch and a half of shock travel to four. We used every every bit of the shock travel. We used all four inches of it. Yeah. And then we, of course, had the shock in the front arm. Then, by golly, you could go down a ditch and hold it wide open all day long. And, uh, you know, that uh, was the start of really using shocks in the industry. That's great. That's a fantastic story. Great. Um, so the, the 78 uh, race you, you won, uh, uh, what, what sled were you on? Were you on this uh, sled that you, you, uh, you engineered? Correct. Yeah, we were on the sled we created. And, so it was a cross-country uh, El Tigre, right? Yeah, it was uh, It was a El Tigre that um, you put kits on. You know, if somebody wanted to race that you're on Articat, they would go buy a 440 El Tigre at a dealer. Then they'd have to buy a 340 engine kit. And, uh, and they could race it with the standard suspension if they wanted, or if they wanted to buy our suspension kits, they could. And some did and some didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, the only negative thing about that sled was, we were stuck with a 329 pitch track. And of course, with the limited horsepower that we had then, it made a big difference. You know, an Arctic always had 329 pitch tracks prior to that. And Skidoo and well, Skidoo had two inch pitch tracks, but uh, Polaris and John Deere had 252. And as it turned out, the shorter pitch tracks were a lot more efficient, they were faster. And it really started showing when we were limited on horsepower. You know, when we had 75, 80 horsepower before that, you know, and, and bigger rear suspension wheels. It didn't really come into play, but when we started adding all that travel to the back, we had to go to smaller rear skid frame wheels. And, of course, then with the wider pitch, like the 329 pitch, it started robbing a lot of power, the track did. So that 78, we were stuck with that 329 pitch track because it was in Arctic system, the, the drive sprockets and everything. And as it turned out, that was the only bad thing about that sled is we didn't have the speed that the Polaris's and the John Deere's and the Skidoo's did. Um you know, my little I-500 sled that year down a road, windshield pulled down, all tucked in, would maybe run about 85, 86. Was that a cleated track or a rubber track? It was rubber. Yeah. It was uh, Yokohama rubber. Right. And, so, uh, yeah. well, the good Skidoo's and our employers, as they'd run about, and John Deere's run about 90. So we could beat them in the ditches, but as soon as we got on a road, they'd pass me. It was the most frustrating thing in the world, you know, you... You work your tail off to get a mile or so ahead of them, and then they put you on the road, and they come flying by you, looking at smiling, you know, and driving right by you. But uh, so we didn't have a fast sled that year, but we just beat them out of uh, just running flat out for 600 miles and not making any mistakes and uh, taking advantages of our strong points, you know, just going flat out through the rough in the ditches and and uh, and just let attrition take its toll. Just let them try to catch us, you know, and eventually enough of them crashed and broke down. Where, um, then I had a battle the last day with Ron Reamer on the John Deere that was epic, you might say, that was really, um, you know, the two of us decided we were both going to win the race. <laughs> Only one of us was. And, I mean, we ran bumper to bumper for over 100 miles, and, and uh, he finally, he crashed three times in that 100 miles, and my sled, of course, with the suspension, didn't because we were running wide open. I mean, we weren't burping it for anything. And and uh, Ron went upside down, you know, three times through that. And uh, then I hit a rock right before he crashed the last time and bent my sled all up. 
but I, I limped in and uh, won the race because, um, you know, he uh, he was just, you know, trying to run the same speed through the rough with a suspension that wasn't as good. And Ron was a nice guy and a heck of a driver, and, uh, you know, we're still friends today. But um, we had the better suspension, and that's what won the race. How much uh, how much time did you win that race by? You know, that one I won by, um, I think, a couple minutes. But um, But he actually... The last time he crashed, um, it was kind of a, uh, I mean, we had been running side by side and he'd crash hard, you know, and I'd keep going. And um, the last time I, I hit a rock, I was right behind him. I hit a rock in a slew. I bent my drive shaft and, and bent my skis so they were towed out about five, six inches. It pushed the tie rods up into the bottom of the motor plate. And he didn't know I hit that rock. See, and we were maybe 30 miles from St. Paul then. And we were going down a road. And then he was probably running 90 down this road. And then all of a sudden the course went back into the ditch, and there was a big approach here. And he hit that approach going about 90 and just went for a nasty cartwheel. You know, and I hit it maybe going 65 because my speed, my drive shaft was bent, and the sled was vibrating. And uh, I was, at that point, hoping I could just finish. And uh, then when I landed, after I hit that approach there, he laid, and uh, both ski tips were bent up into the hood, and Ron was laying by the left side of the sled. The sled was pointed down the trail on its feet. But Ron was laying, his head, I remember his head was right by the left spindle, and he was facing up, and his eyes were shut. He was out, and uh, he, had, he had knocked himself out. And I, and I just missed him. You know, I landed like six inches to the left of him. So I was in his track, yeah. and I remember looking down in his eyes as I landed and figured, oh, my God, this is my lucky day. You know, somebody's looking out after me today. You never stopped or anything, Brian? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> There's more sleds coming from behind. He's on his own. Okay. You know, he does that. He's on his own. He was a tough little critter. He got back up. You know, he woke up and got back on the sled, jumped on the ski tips, bent him down, and I think Ron ended up third that year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I'm a nice guy, but not when it comes to that. You know, <laughs> but uh... so, so after '78, uh, what? Uh, so you won. You won '78 on the on the on the cat. Uh, what happened in the following years? Well, in '79, see, then that sled became a production sled. And uh, in 79, uh, we broke down just miles from the starting line. You know, it was probably, you know, we, 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 we goofed. We screwed up. You know, we, we worked too hard, got run down, got sick. I remember we went to Winnipeg, and I had the flu. Hubert had the flu, and things just weren't going. You know, we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't follow the plan like we should have. And then at the driver's meeting, Herb Howell and the boys get up front and they say, well, you know, we've had all these road disqualifications for people running the roads in the past. So this year we're just going to kind of look the other way. And I was like, oh, my God. Uh-oh. You know, because we, we always, you know, it's always ditches 100% from Winnipeg to Thief River. So we always pulled all our wheels out. And, uh, of course, with a 50-horse engine, I mean, every wheel you took out of the skid frame gained oh, yeah. speed. But, of course, you had to be in the snow then, you know. Yeah. So we had no wheels in the skid frame. And uh, so I asked the officials, I said, can we go out there in the morning and put a couple wheels in that if, if we're going to, if you're going to let us run down the shoulder of the road, you know, or run roads once in a while. I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, if somebody else is on the road and you're in the ditch, <clears throat> you're in trouble. And I mean, you're going to get your butt kicked. So we're out there in the dark on that floodplain, you know, at 30 below zero, trying to put wheels in the skid frame. And, uh, of course the Loctite didn't hold and the bolts weren't tight. And, uh, the front of the front arm and the skid frame fell apart on me about 20 miles down the trail, and we should have just left it alone and ran without the wheels and got into Thief River and then maybe put some wheels in. Yeah. But um, 
that's basically what happened in that race. But we did win a bunch of races in '79. You know, we won uh, uh, big some events up in northern Minnesota and and uh, had a pretty good year. But uh, you could see, you know, Arctic was starting to have problems, and that's when Gerard Tarpik we, was having uh, his big run, also, right? Yeah, you know, we had a lot of battles with Gerard, and he was doing well, and uh, um, you know, in certain conditions, you know, like in the woods races, um, Gerard, I know Gerard and I had a heck of a battle in Park Rapids that winter, and, and uh, we ended up beating him. But uh, it was, I mean, I never went so hard through the trees running with him for a hundred miles, and. I mean, we were bumper to bumper for a good 50 miles of that Park Rapids race that year, and uh, standing up on the sleds, just bouncing off trees and going through the woods as hard as we could, and bound and determined to beat each other, you know. And we ended up beating them, but uh, I mean, it was we went across the finish line side by side, but I had started behind them. But anyway, um, you know, the first race in '79, the, the manufacturers could run prototype sleds. And uh, we were at the North Dakota Governor's Cup. You know, I'm running down the ditch, white-knuckled, going about 85, 90. And this Polaris pulls up alongside of me. And it was Burt Bassett. And he's riding with one hand. <laughs> and uh, he w- he waves at me, and he checks out. Away he goes. I figured, oh, my God, we're in trouble. And oh, it was yeah. a prototype ND, you know. Yeah. And uh, and when at the end of the race, you know, we won the race, and at the end of the race, I asked Hubert, I said, did you see what he was riding? He said, nope. He said when he crossed the finish line, they had a trailer there, a ramp trailer, and they drove it in the trailer, shut the door, and away they went. And, uh, you know, we found out a week or so later what it was because, you know, Arctic field test guys rode north and Polaris field test guys rode south, and, and we found out what it was. And so we built our own prototypes. You know, we, we, we figured that out pretty quick that, you know, in the winter of 1980, if you weren't on an independent suspended sled, you were in trouble. And uh, and we built prototypes with all aluminum front ends, trailing arms, and they're still around. I think uh, uh, Thomas Snow Sports, Tom over there, still yeah. has a couple of them. I think Tom he found them. One, but yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, so we ran Chet those. Bowman. Chet Bowman was running a bunch of those too, right? Yeah, Chet rode one. I rode one, you know, and Chester. Nice looking I, I sled. It was a machine that I, maybe Arctic would have put into production if they hadn't have uh, gotten into trouble in the early 80s because it was a... It had your rear suspension on it, right, from the Altigra? Correct. With the trailing yep. arm. It had an independent end. front end. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, your grandma could beat you on them. I mean, uh, if you were the best driver in the country on a leaf spring sled and you put, you know, um, the average guy on one of those, you couldn't keep up because um, it was, it. I mean, it was so much better in the bumps, you know. And mm-hmm. um, So at the time, see, to back up a little bit, in 1977, Artie Cat was bought out by a guy by the name of Erwin Jacobs, who was a financer from Minneapolis. And he put his uh, his cronies, you might say, his buddies in there to kind of run the company. And I think the main goal was to extract as much cash out of it as they could to, uh, you know, to pay for the stock or pay for the purchase. And we we wanted that independent sled we had, we wanted that produced for the winter of 1980 because we knew if we were going to win races, that's what we had to have. And I knew that leaf springs were done. And, uh, but marketing at Articat didn't see it that way. They looked at that prototype, you know, and prototypes are ugly. They're all handmade parts and plastic riveted on. And, and they said, uh, the thing is ugly. It's gangly looking, you know, you got all the suspension hanging out and nobody's going to buy it. It didn't make the trail cap, right? In 79. Well, they made a trail cap, but that was a whole different design. That was just a, a real 
inexpensive, uh, cheap version of uh, an independent sled, and it was it was it was junk. You know, I mean, the Trailcat was not a good snowmobile. I mean, it had it had no geometry. It had scrub. It had bump steer. I mean, it did everything. I mean, it wasn't as good as a leaf spring sled, and uh, that was another story there. But but anyway, that sled was designed for people that rode through the woods at 25 miles an hour, and uh, Stu Arctic went out and did a big study back then to see if oh, the big moguls in the woods if they were holes or if they were bumps. I'll never forget that. You know, what are they, holes or bumps? So should we build a sled to go through holes or should we build a sled to go through bumps? You know, I mean, it was a little ridiculous. And that's where the trail cat came from. But anyway, uh, uh, you know, and it was, you know, the reason people are going 25 miles an hour through the woods is because that's all the faster you could ride with the equipment you had back then. It wasn't that that's how they wanted to drive. It was the sleds wouldn't go any faster through there and keep the rider on it. So, but our, you know, our version of it, you know, it had Ackerman steering, it didn't have bump steer, it had, uh, you know, it didn't have uh, camber change. I mean, it had caster change, but it didn't have camber change. And it was, I mean, uh, it didn't have scrub, you know, it had radius rods, upper and lower radius rods, and it it handled pretty darn nice. And the shocks were to one-to-one ratio, and you could really go through the bumps. But like I said, marketing at the time wouldn't let us spend the money. It took millions to build that sled. You know, it took um, new bulkheads, new belly pans, new hoods, all the suspension components, skis, tunnel. Everything had to be different. It was it was a major, major um, retooling cost. Retooling cost, yeah. and they wouldn't spend the money, and they thought it looked ugly. And uh, so we had meeting upon meeting, and I remember in the spring of '79 uh, then, when uh, we were told by uh, Arctic uh, management that. Um, they weren't going to build that sled. I went down to the race shop. I backed my pickup up to the door. I loaded up my toolbox, and I said, goodbye. I said, I'm not going to hang around here next winter and haul my butt off on a leaf spring sled. And I went home to um, Spicer, Minnesota, and I bought a boat dealership. And the first call I made was to Polaris, and I said, send a rep out, because I knew the Indies were coming. And uh, they sent a guy out, and we signed up as a Polaris dealer. And, of course, we were a marine dealership, too. And the next 10, 12 years, we sold thousands of Indies, you know. And um, Did you race then? And we raced. Pardon? Were you racing then when you had the dealership, or you kind of hung it up then? Well, I didn't race much. I mean, we uh, we did different things. You know, we had teams. We had drivers. Um, you know, when Arctic got back into business in 84 then, we picked up their product line. So then we were an Arctic employer's dealer. Yeah. And uh, in 87, of course, I did run the the... Thunder Bay to St. Paul, or Thunder Bay to White Bear Lake race on an Arctic Cat, but uh, it was a 5,000 El Tigre, and it wasn't near uh, as good as an Indy was, you know, and we started, that Thunder Bay deal was kind of a makeshift race anyway, and you know, we started dead last and went through all those stumps and trees and on a sled that wasn't competitive, so basically I just beat the snot out of my body for a couple hundred miles, and, the, and the, we never did get to St. Paul that year because the snow melted, you know, and so that kind of cured me of riding that thing. Anyway, um, I remember I got home and I, I couldn't hardly get out of the pickup. You know, I was so sore from because the shocks on that uh, front end of that 87 El Tigre were right next to the muffler and they were um, underneath the bulkhead there and they didn't get any cooling and they weren't good shocks. They'd get hot in the woods and, and they'd boil. And uh, so you, you had virtually no shocks, you know. 
So you're running through these big moguls in this woods with no ski shocks, and my God, it, you, you hit so hard, it would knock the wind out of you constantly. You know, I mean, it was just a brutal pounding. And them little indies were just floating through there, just running off and leaving us. So um, that kind of cured me of uh, of that for a while. Yeah. And we were so busy with the dealership. You know, the dealership was doing well and it was growing, and um, we had started doing our tour business back then. Uh, you know, like in 80 and 81, we had two mild winters with no snow. And I was sitting there, new to the business, going broke, you know, warehouse full of snowmobiles and yeah. no business. So I figured, well, if it isn't going to snow in Minnesota, we'll take people to snow. So I went and bought a 48-foot van, put a deck in it, went to my dad's truck dealership, got a truck, chartered a bus, and I took 27 people to West Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. And they loved it. You know, people hadn't been out there before. And pretty soon we're doing two trips, and then we're doing three, and pretty soon we're doing four trips a year. It turned out to be a a huge boost for the marine industry, for my dealership, because people would go to Yellowstone with me, and we made money on the trips. And then before they left, they'd buy suits, boots, clothing, have their sleds clutched and jetted, and then they'd go out there and put a 1,000 miles on, beat them all up, roll them down the mountains, and come back, and we'd fix them or <laughs> train them in on new ones, you know. It was still just, do that. Uh, it, was a, it was a win-win like deal. Fun. <laughs> yeah, I got had fun and I got paid to do it, you know. And, um, so we were doing that, and uh, and we were running race teams and and helping people, and and uh, and then what happened in uh, you know 1990 already came with an EXT special, which was finally a competitive race sled. So Hubert and I built one, and for the first race, which was Pine Lake, and we still put events on up there nowadays, you know, and we went to Pine Lake. And uh, with that EXT and, and had a blast. You know, I just smoked them. And I remember um, in the final, it was 100. You know, they started 30 sleds at once for the final, and it was uh, 10 laps, 100 miles. And I went out and put, uh, I got a terrible hole shot. I think I was the last guy to get moving. But after halfway around the first lap, I was leading. And I put about three, four miles on the guys and just sat out there and had fun. You know, just comes. I mean, the sled was so good. I mean, we had we just built a rocket ship, you know, that handled and uh, won the race. And then I put one of my uh, my employees on it, and we won uh, every race that year but the I-500, all the Heartland races, we won every one. And, um, Who was that rider? Uh, huh? Who was the rider you had? His name was Billy Wirtz. He, he was a, a farm kid from uh, just north of New London, a uh, good kid, young, strong guy, and um, good rider. I mean, Billy was smart, did a good job. Um, I was really proud of him. And, uh, you know, that's your Kirk won the 500, you know, we had that shortened 500 that ended in Luth because of no snow. But, um, and, and we finished the 500, but, um, you know, Bill got, uh, I don't remember what happened back in the woods there. He was doing well and then something went wrong and back in the rough woods. But anyway, uh, but all the rest of the races we won, and uh, had a good year, and of course, then in '91 they came with this thing called a prowler, and uh, which was you know the goose that laid the rotten egg. I mean that thing was. It was uh, a nice sled. I, that was a cute little sled. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't good for much of anything. <laughs> it's sort of like a cute girl, you yeah. know, that couldn't do anything right. But anyway, um, it, it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, as it turned out, I mean, it didn't take us long to divorce that thing, just like you would, a, you know, a girl that you weren't happy with. But um, so, you know, we I think we ran like two races with that prowler, and, and Hubert and I came to the conclusion that 
that wasn't anything we wanted anything to do with. But we had Indies sitting all over, so yeah, we'll race Indies. <laughs> you know, so we did. And uh, then in the winter of '91, about halfway through the winter, Roger Skyme called and said, "Why don't you and Hubert come up here and have a visit?" So we went up there. And Roger said, "I want you to build." Still got your dealership, and uh, you're still yeah. selling Captain Polaris, and, and Roger calls you guys up. Yeah, he he was looking for ideas. Yeah. And so Hubert and I went up there and um you know, and we were really disappointed with the prowler. And uh and Roger was disappointed with it and the race team was disappointed with it, you know. Um, you know, nobody could make it work. And uh anyway, uh so Roger started a program. He had his engineering staff building some prototypes, and then he hired us to build some prototypes. And the race shop built one. So there's like three different groups working on a new race sled. Okay, so Hubert and I went home. Uh, somewhat, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was it was a competitive venture. You yeah. Know I mean, it was, uh, we were, you know, everybody's kind of proud of their ideas. And, and uh, so when you start on a project like that, you know, you, uh, um, you want to beat the other guy. And uh, you want to build a better snowmobile. You know, why do all that work and then have them throw it in the trash can? So... You know, I remember when we, we loaded up the pickup with engines and uh, tunnels and different parts, you know, just filled the truck up with aluminum and scrap and started home to Spicer. I remember when we got in the truck to leave, you know, Hubert and I, were we were thinking about building a trailing arm sled. And uh, Roger Skyme looked at us and he said, don't come back here with a trailing arm sled because we won't build it. Really? <laughs> so we get in the pickup when we're heading home and I said, well, Hubert, you got any ideas? And he said, "Yep." He said, "I know we're going to do this. We're going to build, we're going to build wishbones, you know, and we're going to make it work." So, we we sat down and we laid out the criteria that we wanted. And Prowler was want. a wishbone front end, right? Yeah, it was, but it wasn't built right, you know. The Prowler had a lot of major boo boos, and uh, and of course we knew what they were, and uh, so you know Hubert and I came up with this list of things that we wanted in a race sled. And the first thing was was the front end. We wanted a perfect front end. We wanted a front end that had zero bump steer, had zero scrub, had no Ackerman steering, it had no caster change. And uh, everything that a good race car front end should have. And, uh, and then, so that was our, our main criteria on the front end. So Hubert laid that all out and designed it. And we've, you know, the the unequal length upper A-frames and uh, the length of the spindles and where we mounted everything, all the mounting points. We made our own tooling. We made all our own parts. And uh, to start with, we just stuck a player skid frame in it because they had the best skid frame in those days. And uh, and I wanted I wanted brakes. So I went to um, Willwood and I got a little um, front-end caliper, a caliper off the front left front wheel of a sprint car. And I used that and full-floated it. And then I went to uh, the motorcycle shop, and Hubert figured out. And I told Hubert, I said, I want a brake that I can have four of my fingers wrapped around the handlebar and have one finger on the brake pedal. And I want to be able to come into a corner at 100 miles an hour with 300 studs in the track and touch the brake and lock the track up. <laughs> so okay. you weren't burning up, you know, all your. See, the old the Polaris hydraulic brakes in that day, you had to have your whole hand on that brake lever and squeeze as hard as you could. Oh, yeah. But when you're on a lake race yeah. in the woods or whatever, Pretty soon your left arm, you know, pumps up and you can't can't hold on anymore. You know your your yep. your arm goes numb, and uh, so I wanted to be able to hold on to the handlebars and and use just one breathe on that brake pad, lock that track up. 
Because when you come into a corner with all them studs, it's just like a sprint car. You know, you got to lock that track up, kick that sled sideways, because the sled won't turn if the track isn't locked up. It'll just push, and you'll drive right off the end of the corner in the trees. So mm-hmm. when you got to drive in deep, tap the brakes, lock the track up, kick the sled sideways, and down the next straightaway, you know. And uh, so Hubert said, well, here's the diameter piston you're going to need to make that happen. So I went to a motorcycle shop, and, and I took brake master cylinders apart <laughs> until I found one with the diameter that I wanted and uh, bought it, took it home. It was a McGurr master cylinder. I can't remember what it was off of. Uh, off a mountain bike. Off, yeah, I think it was a German bike or something, yeah, yeah. ATM or something like that. Anyway, um, took it home and uh, made up a line and put it on, and oh, my God, we had brakes, you know. And you just breathed on the thing, and and when people first rode it, they, it spooked them because they just touched the brake and go over the handlebars. Oh, I remember, and, I remember uh, that happening. Uh, that they, the wheel, those wheel woods were famous for that on the ZRs. Well, it worked, you know. Yeah, it worked. And it was the first sled that really had brakes, and people weren't used to having brakes. Yeah, the brake would uh, always fade, and yeah, but this brake would go and go and go. You know, I mean, it was uh, we had we we went from the worst brake in the industry to the best. Anyway, um, an Arctic was coming with the Thundercat, and Roger wanted a brake for that. So, um, you know, the, the, that cable brake, you know, was, um, you know, you wouldn't dare build a Thundercat with that old cable brake that we had back then. And, uh, of course, we needed it for racing. But there was uh, a little political battle there, too. There was a guy at Arctic Cat who had a lot of power, and his name was Bill Ness. You know, he ran the company. Yeah. And he had said at one time, we will never have a hydraulic brake again because they did 1980 on the Pantera, and they had major issues. You know, they built their own hydraulic brake, and it wasn't done right, and it burned up a bunch of sleds, and it was nothing, you know. So they, they were kind of down on hydraulic brakes, but we knew what we needed to make it work. And uh, I remember I went to Ole Tweet, and I said, Ole, you know, here's the brake, and here's what we need. And he said, I'll take care of the political end of it. You don't worry about it. And he, and he did. He got it pushed through uh, management that we could use this brake, and uh, so we had brakes, and we wanted a. I wanted to be able to slide forward on the sled and get right up on the front end and not have the gas tank beat you up. So we 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 designed a fuel tank that fit the thighs, where the the seat went up over the tank, and the tank was it was it didn't have square corners on it. You know the old Articamp players tanks back then. The back of the tank had square corners, so you'd be hanging over the front end of the thing and in the bumps trying to get around a corner. And those square corners are just beating the snot out of your inside of your thighs, you know. Yeah. wasn't real comfortable. So we designed the tank so it didn't do that. And uh, we wanted uh, an aerodynamic hood and airflow over the hood and uh, on and on and on. And, uh, you know, so and then what we would do about every three weeks, we'd go to Thief River with our prototype and we'd run it against uh, the stuff that they were building and and we had a Polaris test sled. We had an XCR, and we'd run against that. And we'd go to Lake of the Woods. We'd go up to Roger's place in Skyam and run and run. And uh, then we'd go home and make improvements, and they'd go home. They'd go back to the shop and work on theirs. And I remember in the spring of uh, 92, then we were up at War Road at Lake of the Woods, and it was it was time to make a decision what we were going to do. And we had all the prototypes sitting there, and it was Joey and Roger and myself and Davey Thompson, and I don't remember who else was there. And Roger, we had them all sitting there, and so Roger says, okay, boys, we're going to take a vote. And, of course, they all voted for the one that Hubert and I had because it worked the best. You know, we we, um, we just we had a better working scooter, and uh, so that turned into the ZR. Okay. Yeah, that was an amazing sled. That, that, that sled's going to go down in history as being one of the, one of the 
you know, one of the best handling sleds, you know, throughout the 90s, I think, you know, for all brands. It was, uh, it, it was a fun project, you know, we, uh, uh, I remember we went to Duluth that fall then, and, uh, you know, Arctic hadn't wanted to race at Duluth for many years, and we had Kirk there and uh, Brian Sturgeon and a few other good right. riders, Brad Pig. and Brad uh, Pig. we won all four pro classes, and it was, you know, fun. I mean, we knew we were going to be competitive, but we didn't think we'd be that good. You guys using uh, Fox shocks on that at the time then, or as you moved? Yeah, to them, yeah we had Fox shocks, and yeah. that um, that was Kirk's thing there. You know, Kirk had been working with Fox shocks because they had open shock rules out west. Yeah. So, uh, but Arctic had used Fox shocks in 1992, and the Prowler Special had Fox shocks. But okay. um, Kirk had a lot to do with the valving and uh, on the shocks because he was he was uh, years ahead of us in that area at that time. So that was a you know. It was Kirk's valving packages in the shocks, you know, and everybody, you know, there's a lot of people at Arctic that, that every, you know, it was a team effort, you know, it wasn't just me and Hubert, it was, uh, um, you know, the styling shop at Arctic did a fabulous job, Lonnie, Lonnie and Kevin Thompson were, were great, uh, you know, everybody, when, when they, when they, everybody threw their weight behind it at that point in the spring of 92, and they decided that that's what they were going to do, and did their best, and, you know, you took Kirk, who was a master at shocks at the time, and uh, the styling shop, and uh, it was, uh, it turned out to be a phenomenal success. You know, it made Arctic um, competitive, and they sold a lot of production snowmobiles off that chassis for many yeah, that, years. That ZR, you can, you can probably say it, it resurrected that company back. For sure. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, we won, I, know, I remember in 93, we won every cross country, we won the Gold Rush Classic. And uh, we won the big race in Alaska. We won the races in Europe. Uh, won races at Eagle River. Won the stock class in the hill climb at Jackson. It, there isn't hardly a race that sled didn't win. And um, so it was, you know, kind of a um, it was a benchmark well, snowmobile for them for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, kind of a neat deal. And How long you know, you Arctic took care of us. I remember they, um, you know, when most dealers were getting three and four 580ZRs to sell. I got a hundred of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> he said, "How many do you want, Brian?" I said, "I'll take a hundred. And a hundred of five eighties, the R showed up, and I sold every one. And uh, the good thing was, nobody, nobody else had them, so I could make money on them too. You yeah. know, I wasn't having to beat everybody's deal. But, but how, uh, how long were you? We, uh, we, how, but, how long were you working on this uh, ZR project for um, through the through the nineties? Well, we you know we started building the, the prototype thing in ninety uh, one. And uh, of course, it's produced in the November of '92, and uh, we kind of stayed with it. I mean, there was certain things every year that we'd see that we wanted changed. You know, after the first year, we wanted the angle of the bulkhead changed, and uh, you know, then everybody jumped on the bandwagon. You know, all the suspension guys at Arctic, and of course, Kirk was, you know, instrumental in, in a lot of the changes too. And, you know, more travel, better suspension, better shock valving, and just, you had to improve every year or people catch up with you. You know, you had that, we had that jump on everybody, that 15, 20% better sled, and you just had to improve it that much every year to stay ahead of everybody else. Because they would catch up to you what you had the year before, but then you had to come out the next year better yet. And we did that, we were able to do that for a long time, you know, until Skidoo came out with their new platform with the RAV and and, kind of took over and... You know, at that point, Arctic should have built a new sled, and they didn't. But uh, um, you know, it, 
that's when that's when Arctic should have leapfrogged over the Rav, but yeah. um, for some reason they just uh, didn't. And um, well, they put lots of patents on the design, and that's a tough one to get around. Yeah. So, so let's move on then. Uh, uh, so you kept your 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 dealership uh, going, and and then of course in the nineties. Snowcross starts taking off more from cross-country racing. And uh, so, you know, Kirk Hibberts, Blair Morgans, uh, Cat had, you know, great riders. And uh, cross-country really took a, took a backseat. I even think the, uh, the Thunder Bay uh, to, uh, to White Bear Lake race, you know, um, stopped. And uh, then they started moving towards... Uh, Forget the name of it, Brian. You'll you'll remember it. The race around Thief River, where they kind of did a 500 mile in and out over three days. Well, we call it the Loop Race. You know, where <clears throat> they did three three loops. That actually started in War Road, and then it ended up when That's Pat right. Mock started his circuit, ended up down in Thief River. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it was um, you know Pat Mock was instrumental in getting cross country racing going again <clears throat> with USCC with his circuit. You know, Pat uh, started with nothing and worked hard and it grew and it grew and uh you know we've just taken uh, taken it from there you know from where he ended up why do you off think cross it. country um you know it was so big in the late 70s and 80s i mean like you were you were you know in the early 80s i mean arctic arctic went uh you know down there was kind of the last shakeout in the industry was it was it more weather related and just not enough People participating, or what? What do you think was the demise probably, of cross country? Probably more logistics, wasn't it, not Brian? Like, like, like it's it's tough to it's tough to do a cross country race. Yeah, was it insurance issues? What do you think it was? Well, a combination of things. You know, eighty and eighty one, we had no snow, and as you well know, that devastated the industry. Everybody went broke except three companies, and uh, there was no money for racing of any sort. Yeah. So when that happens to an industry, it takes years and years to build it back up. And it did. I mean, it took till uh, you know the late '80s, early '90s before the industry really started getting healthy again. And of course, racing goes right along with that. And uh, you know, the thing about cross country is you need this, the weather's got to cooperate. You got to have snow. I mean, you can go do lake races, oval races, snow cross races, regardless of the weather, because you can make snow, you can run on the ice. But cross country, you got to have snow. And uh, so. That was the the thing, and and the logistics of putting on a cross country race are a lot more significant and involved than going out on a lake and doing a lake race or something like that because of the the people you need and the distances you cover. So it's it's hard to find people. You know, people don't come along every day that that know how to do that and want to do that. And um, so that's a big part of it. you know Pat Mock came along and wanted to do it and did it and did a great job at it and uh, got it going again, and, uh, you know, thanks to him, the cross-country is where it's at today. You know, unfortunately, Pat passed away, you know, in 011, and uh, we kind of took what he started and ran from there with it. But, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize uh, how much it takes, just uh, even our, our weekly events, like we're going to Grafton now next week, and the permits, the people, the spotters, marking the course, uh, yeah. everything that goes into making an event like that uh, take place and making it successful. Do you, now, do you, uh, let's talk about that because I, I, I know it's a, it's a daunting task to do the logistics of, of a cross-country race. 
do you, do you start like a, a a a year ahead of time, months ahead of time, and and make all these calls to all these districts and and clubs and you know um, you know obviously officials, uh, you know police forces and stuff like that. You know it, it must be quite a quite an ordeal to put together. Well, yeah. Well, the I five hundred has been, of course. Um, our weekly events aren't quite as bad because once you do one, they, they kind of grow their own legs, you might say. You know, people are in place. Uh, clubs come back and help you the next year. I mean, there's still a lot of work, but um, of course, the I-500 not having been run for a long time was a you know we had to start from scratch. And uh, the fortunate thing was, when you say I-500, when you go to a snowmobile club in northern Minnesota and you say you're going to r- run the I-500 again. They also walk up and shake your hand. You know, they just, uh, they're enthusiastic. They're, they can't wait to help you. And uh, we ran into that from Winnipeg to Wilmer with snowmobile people and clubs and trail associations. And it would have never uh, got to the point it's at without that support. I mean, the support was phenomenal. I mean, uh, wherever I went, I ran into uh, people that were willing to work with us and willing to help. And, so, uh, like, go ahead. Yeah, Brian. Um, I just, kind of step me through it so you know you i'm just trying to imagine like somebody like yourself coming to the town that i live here in ontario and you know you want to put a snowmobile race through it where where do you where do you start do you meet with the town council first or the local snowmobile club like how do you even get them to even entertain the thought of of doing this well all the towns from you know winnipeg down um first thing i did is i called the mayor and, uh, of course, every one of them was all for it, you know. And, uh, you know, the first, to back up a little bit, on the I-500, we knew that the first logistical issue was going to be the border. Yeah. And Pat had tried to get through the border for two to three years and, and didn't have any luck with it. So I made an appointment with a gal by the name of Mary Meyer, who's head of U.S. Customs in Pembina. And uh, Joey Hallstrom and I went up there and, and had a meeting with her uh, in March of 2012. And uh, we knew that that's the first thing we had to do was make sure that we could get have a, a positive way, you know, a logistical way of getting across the border. So we met with Mary and her people, and and uh, they were very supportive. I was I was very happy. You know, basically she said, "Let's make this happen. What can we do to make this work?" And we were very impressed. And uh, you know, went out of there. It was like it was kind of a uh, you know, breath. what are we going to do now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I looked at Joy and we walked out of there and said, I wish she oh, would have said no. We could have just went home. It would have <laughs> been a lot less work. Yeah. <laughs> it blows me away that they would even, uh, so what's everybody got to carry a passport with them and check in or? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. It's, you go, you'll go through customs just like you do with a car. Yeah. I mean, uh, but, um, but at least uh, they were willing to work with us and willing to make it happen. And hopefully this year it goes well and we can get a little more expedited way to do it next year. But, um, yeah, they were um, eager to work with us. So so that, uh, and hopefully after the race, they still are. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, okay. Basically, they just have to have a good, a good identification. They have to take their helmets off, and, and then uh, they can basically proceed across the border. I imagine they have a master list of, of the competitors, too, that they can check off. Or something is that correct? We send them a list of the VIN number for the snowmobile, the person's name, and their address. And uh, but the, the, we are going to take them off the clock coming into the border right before the U.S. Customs. 
their time will stop. The, the snowmobile will come to a stop. They'll go off the clock. And uh, at that point, they'll idle through customs. They'll they'll take their helmet off and get ID'd and uh, proceed. And then their time actually won't stop till they leave Pemina. They'll go down to Pemina. They'll fuel right in town. And uh, then at that point, they'll... Uh, Go over the Red River, and as soon as they cross the Red River into Minnesota, their time will start again. Okay. Okay. So, so talk about the, t- the timing. How 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 are you going to be timing this event and uh, and keeping the, keeping track of everybody? Well, that's been another issue. Um, you know, we use a MyLapse electronic timing system, yeah. and it's not set up for a point-to-point event. You know, it's set up for a, a loop-type race where they they take off, cross the wires, and uh, an hour or two later they come back and go across the wires again. So. There again, thanks to Lonnie Thompson, you know, we, we, we didn't get any help from my laps to speak of on it, but Lonnie, um, who, you know, works at Articat and is uh, very sharp when it comes to, uh, you know, software and computers and, and how to do stuff like this, he came up with the idea that we will email the race package to another computer. So first we tried it, you know, in, a, in an office environment and it worked. We started a race, and we emailed it to another computer, opened it up, and it was still running. Then last summer, I went to uh, Winnipeg. first time I went up there, I couldn't make it work because I found out I needed an international Wi-Fi plan. And, of course, my Verizon system didn't work in Canada because they don't have Verizon. So we had all kinds of issues there, and we couldn't do it. So then I came home and went to the Verizon store, and I said, no, you know, you got to make my phone have my hotspot work in Canada. So they did. And uh, so then I went back, and what what I did is I stopped in Thief River, and we laid out the wires in, in Lonnie's backyard and hooked the decoder up in the computer. And then I drove to the Winnipeg Speedway, the Red River Co-op Speedway, and, and uh, laid everything out and started a race. Took the transponder and ran it across wires, and a race started. And then I emailed that package down to Lonnie, and then I drove to Thief River, and four hours later I was in Lonnie's yard, Ran the transponder across the wires, and the race and it worked. Wow, that's know? great! So, so you're all on a network. All, all all these stages will be on a network type of thing where, um, yeah, running at the same time. And I mean, just, yeah, yeah. That's, that's there's pretty. things that could go wrong. Yeah, like the email won't go, you know, or um, for some reason the hotspot won't work. It's a major concern of mine. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're going to time it manually too yeah. for a backup. Yeah, I would have but, thought you'd uh, like, have... a, like a GPS transponder or something. Yeah, did you think of the matter. spot, like the, the spot transponders or something like that? Did you think of maybe running something like that? We've looked at that, but, uh, you know, they're expensive. And um, see, our, our, the MyLab system really is the way to go. We're all yeah. tied in with it. It's in our computer. It's in our software. And, uh, you know, it keeps track of, uh, you know, it, it does a printout. You know, 10 minutes after the race is over, you hit print, and it prints out yeah. total results for the day. and. You know the the spot thing won't do any of that. It'll just tell you where the guy is. Basically, are you, are you going to be live? Are you, are you, will people be able to track the, uh, this race live? Well, if if a racer has has you know one of those spot uh, uh, transponders, they they could. But you know we're not providing that for the drivers because they're they're two, that program is you know two hundred fifty bucks a driver with uh, yeah. with the program you got to buy with it. So I mean we can't. We don't need it. And, and I mean it's a cool deal. But you know when you're out in the tundra in Alaska, great. But we don't need it for our race, and, and it's an expense we can't afford. So, how about, uh, how about manually? Um, can, can, can you? Yeah, like I'm wondering how they do it with uh, Kane's Quest and that. How they do the timing? Well, uh, they do it with just stopwatches. 
Oh, really? That's how they do it in Alaska at the Iron Dog, okay. too. Almost just a wristwatch. But, see, things aren't that close in those races either. Yeah. Uh, you know, they. I know the. I mean, I've talked to the guy that runs uh, the Iron Dog a number of times about insurance issues and stuff, and, and they primarily almost do it with their wristwatches. <laughs> you know, they don't. Uh, but there's usually, you know, a half hour between sleds, so, it's, you know, seconds aren't that critical. And, but, you know, in our race, things are really close nowadays. Is there going to be a way for, for people uh, to, to track um, the, the competitors, like uh, through social media or, or something? Is there going to be like, like maybe well, yeah, one, we one website? Well, yeah, our, our, we have our website yeah. and uh, com, And, of course, we have a Facebook page that's uh, USXC Racing. And, uh, you know, we, I mean, and then we we broadcast FM and there's radio stations that will be covering the event. Uh, for example, uh, uh, KTRF out of Thief River Falls is going to cover the event live all the way from Pemina to Wilmer, uh-huh. and uh, and and you can you can follow them on on the internet too. They they will uh, be streaming it. So oh, perfect. What's that website for everybody to, to write down? Well, the the radio station in Thief River is KTRF. Yeah, and now do they have a do they have an internet webbing system uh, streaming system? They do, and I, I, to be real honest, I don't know what that that yeah. address is right at the moment. But yeah. uh, okay. as soon as we we get it, um, you know, we'll put it on our Facebook page and our website so people can follow it. Okay. So talk so talk about the uh, the stages, um, the towns that you're going through through uh, through the uh, the I five hundred. Um, how how far are they apart? Uh, uh, the days um, that the stages take place. Well. Originally, you know, our our format was to run from Winnipeg to Thief River to the casino south of Thief River, and uh, that's a it's it's a long run. You know, it's only 50 miles to the border from the speedway, but from Pemina to Thief River to the casino is 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 a hike, and uh, it's going to be about 160 miles, 150, 160 miles, um, right in that area to the casino. Of course, day two from the casino to Bemidji is going to be about another uh, oh, 135, 140-mile ride. Now, is, 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 there to, time, is there time cutoffs per day, per day for, for the competitors? Yeah, there will be. Yeah, okay. And, and now, We haven't and, and are they determined allowed to work? that yet because... Are they, are they allowed well, they're, to work, they're allowed the to work on, at the end of uh, day one. Yeah. They okay. get an hour. Uh, they are not allowed to work in Bemidji at the end of day two, and they are allowed an hour at the end of day three. But we give them a credit if they don't work on it. We give them a three-minute credit if they restage a sled and don't put it in the repair area. Really cool. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, we started that so, last so year. They have a, like a safety uh, thing, uh, Brian. Like say their windshield gets knocked off or something. They that they they they, uh, they can fix that down in Bemidji or no? They have to run without it. Well, they can, but they're on the clock when they do it. Oh, they're on the clock. Okay. Yeah. Any work is on the clock. Yeah. Okay. And and uh, gas stops um, in 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 stuff um, are they just at um, th- th- those uh, those stages or is there other gas stops uh, between stages? Like what, what's the, what's the furthest uh, what's the what's the furthest stage that the the races are going to go? Well, the longest run on fuel is going to be uh, from Pemina to the casino. Uh, and, and we might have to do something there. The Polaris's and the Articats and the Yamahas will all make it fine. Um, we're a little bit concerned about the Skidoo's, and you know we've told them it's going to be a long pull there from Pemina to the casino. And conditions will have a lot to do with it too. 
Um, the skidoos hold about three gallons less than anybody else, so oh, they could wow. have a problem, and I don't know what they're going to do about it, but it's their problem the way it's Now, the Iron Dog sled yeah. they just came out with uh, qualified for the race, or this, this Iron Dog special, has it got a larger tank? Have you seen that one? I, I, I don't know anything about yeah, that one. They just introduced that yesterday for the Iron Dog race in Alaska, and uh, it's like a cross-country model, kind of similar to what Cat uh, has out. Okay. Well, I know the current skidoos that they're racing have about a nine and nine point two gallon tank, and uh, depending on the mileage, um, they're going to have uh, it's going to be nip and tuck to get from Pembina to Thief River. So, to if, the if they had to, if they had to fill up, is there going to be gas stations that they can just pull off the course, kind of thing, um, and 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 tank up? Can they do that? No, you can't leave the race course. Okay. So, um, you know, if what what's what we might let skidoo do is we might set up a, a location somewhere, say, right in Thief River, because, see, the casino is about, you know, 15 miles south of Thief River. So somewhere where we could supervise it, we might set up, uh, like, uh, like right in the, where they go under the bridge, right in Thief River there, we might fence off a spot and say that anybody that thinks they need fuel could could uh, fuel, have a crew there. We wouldn't be able to uh, man it and do it with the manifold system. You know, that's another thing that we've had to create for this event is a fuel manifold uh, fueling system. So that's been a big expense and a lot of work, too. So that's kind of like uh, you see in, in car racing. It's kind of like a, a flap kind of thing with those, no spillage. No, not really. Um, it's uh, it's a manifold system that uh, hooks to a bulk truck so we can fuel like 10 to 12 sleds at one time. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. See, <clears throat> see, there's no way... You can let the crews run around the country. Um, you, you know, say you got 300 sleds that leave Winnipeg, you couldn't have 300 pickups racing down to Pemadon <laughs> to the fuel stop with gas cans in the back yeah. to fuel their sleds. Yeah. It'd be, the, you know, the first off, uh, RCMP and the you know Minnesota Highway Patrol would never give you a permit if you did something like that, and uh, wouldn't be safe. Uh, it would be a, a logistical nightmare. So, and that's why in the old days, the old I-500, the fueling was all done by the crew with manifolds. So we've built two manifold systems. One will fuel 12 sleds, one will fuel 10. And uh, we hook it to the pressure side of a bulk truck. So we can fuel a sled in about, well, we could do it quick if we wanted to, but uh, we're going to do it in about 45 seconds. Yeah. So talk talk about the sleds that are going to that are going to be competing. Uh, this is this is the I mean cross country racing is is the only. Well, other than I guess hill climb, um, it's it's both basically production sleds. Like they're not they're not the factory Correct. race sleds that uh, you see on snowcross. These are sleds that you any anybody can buy and anybody can race this circuit. Yeah. Well, when we started the circuit, you know, in o, in o thirteen, of course, the sled everybody was racing was the factory race sled. It was the race sled. It was a carbureted hybrid sled that wasn't available to the consumer. You had to buy it through the race shop and uh, it was a sled that you could do considerably considerable amount of tinkering with. You know, the, a lot of the teams, the big teams, would bump the timing way up and put $12 a gallon race gas in, and engines were blowing, and uh, they were too fast and too finicky, and they didn't start when they were cold, and they had to be jetted perfect. I took a look at that, and I figured, this is ridiculous. You know, if we're going to grow this sport, those things got to go. we got to give them things a boot. And... Uh, and of course, when I came with that proposal, you know, I, of course, I ran into, uh, um, you might say, uh, major um, backlash from the race shops because they were in love with their race sled. And uh, but we 
But on the production and, side, they must uh, have loved it. Well, yeah, marketing at the companies were all in favor of my idea. Yeah. Um, the only ones that didn't like it were the top teams that were winning all the races. And, of course, the race shop guys that were in love with their hybrid race sled. And, uh, but, you know, you got to do what's best for the sport. For and, sure. fortunately, Todd Atchenberg came on board at ISR and agreed with me. So, um, you know, I knew that if we were going to make this I-500 work, the fueling and everything... You know, those old sleds weren't even, those race sleds weren't even oil injected. You had to mix them, you know. Yeah. So how can you yeah. have 300 of them things coming into a fuel stop and one guy uses 50% race gas, the other guy uses 75% race gas, one uses this oil, one uses that oil. There's no way you would make that work. And, uh, and of course, you can't let the teams fuel themselves. So uh, the I-500 alone would, you know, you couldn't run those sleds. And, then, you know, I knew that in order to grow the sport and get the entries that we needed, we had to have a snowmobile that you could go to a dealer and buy, you could trail ride it before the race, and you could trail ride it after the race, yeah. and uh, which meant an EPA-compliant EFI production snowmobile. Talk about the so, if, if you can, talk about the, the, the sleds and models that, that will be competing, that, so people have a general idea of, of what sleds will be competing in the I-500. Well, of course, you know, Arctic runs their 600ZR, and they have their ZRR, of course, which is their... It's just basically a ZR with better shocks on it. And the Polaris is running their uh, production sled, you know, a sled that you can go to a dealer and buy, their Axis. And I know um, they were pretty down in the dumps about having to run that sled uh, last spring when we made the change. And now they're all smiling from ear to ear because the sled is working great. Yeah. And, of course, Yamaha is, is more competitive now because they uh, the two-strokes have less power now, so it's made them competitive and made them, uh, you know, right in there, right in the ballpark. And the Skidoo has their, um, what's that thing called, XTR, RXT XRS. or something? RS. XRS. Which is a great sled. And, uh, you know, that sled won our I-500 class in the I-500 last year, took it first, second, third. And uh, so, you know, we have, now we have four, all four brands are very competitive. And it was amazing in our first race in Pine Lake there, um, you know, normally at that race, there's one or two factory-backed sleds that have more race gas and bigger timing and that got 10 more horsepower and get a mile or two out in front. And it's like watching paint dry. You know, they go drive 100 miles way out in front of everybody, and it's about the most boring thing you could do. Well, this year, you know, we lined up four rows of six, 24 sleds, and dropped the flag, and it was like a NASCAR race. It was incredible because they're all about the same speed now. They come down that big, long straightaway, bumper to bumper, 24 sleds in a pack, you know. And uh, the people that won the race weren't the ones that had the fastest sleds. They were the ones that rode the hardest, had the best setup, had the best handling, the quickest fuel stops. It, it's it's a driver's race again. And, so, Brian, uh, just, just kind of going back, um, I've got to run here. i got to get back to work. Um, um, the, uh, the Yamaha is the only four-stroke running, right? Um, are they a little, after the first two races, do they have a little more top end, or do you see any advantage with the four-stroke, uh, especially for the I-500 with fuel mileage, or, or the heavier weight is going to even everything out? Well, they appear to have a little more speed on the ice, um, but then again, as soon as you get in the corners, that weight's a disadvantage. So I would say they really don't have an overall um, equipment advantage. Uh, you know, they're the only place they maybe have the best chance of winning a race is on the lake, but... You know, time will tell on the bumps, too. Um, but it's it's made them competitive. Uh, you know, the weight's definitely a disadvantage 
um, for corners and starting and stopping and going down rough ditches, but um, they do have a speed advantage. So when they're on the roads, or you know, they they do have more power. So um, which they need to be competitive, and and uh, so they are they are competitive, and they got a chance of winning races if they do things right. The drivers do the do a good job. They could win some races. What, um, so, what, so what classes do you have, um, uh, Ryan, for for the for the I five hundred? Is there well, the I-500, we have basically, we've limited our classes there because, you know, our regular events run 20 classes, so we have something for everybody, you know, we're trying to make everybody happy. But the I-500, we have basically an I-500 class, which that's our premier class for the I-500. That's for sport, semi-pro, pro drivers, over 40, over 50, pro women, they're all in the I-500 class. I know one class fits all. Then we have a sportsman's class, which has a lower entry fee. We'll still have a purse for the guy that just wants to go ride the I-500. You know, the old retired guy, the journalist, uh, um, you know, somebody that just wants to experience the event. And so he's not competing against the pro drivers. And then we have an 85-horse class. And uh, the last day we do have um, we do have a class for uh, vintage and juniors that run the last day. So is it so? There's no displacement uh, limit then. 600, 600 cc max. Okay, 600 max. Two stroke and yeah. 1,050 four stroke. Yeah. yeah. Okay, perfect. How I you... got one last question here, and then I've got to run, Gord. Yep. Um, but you can. Um, I'll, I'll continue with uh, Brian. With Brian, yeah, I've got to. I've got to head back. Um, just the factory involvement, uh, Brian. Are are all four manufacturers, uh, you know, uh, giving equal support this year, or? Or how are, you, how are you finding that? I mean, they're all really behind Snowcross. Uh, how, are, how, are, how are they as far as cross-country goes? Well, um, they have been, you know, the manufacturers, all four do support us uh, from one extent to another. Everyone uh, somewhat different, you might say. Um, you know, certain companies um, are better and uh, than others. and But they all they all support us, and we appreciate it, and we couldn't do it without it. Um you know, we need that sponsorship. There's no way we could do this, spend this kind of money and have the equipment and the people and the websites. And there's just a ton of expenses out there that people just don't realize. You know, our, our website expense is 2500 bucks a month just for all the changes we make on a daily basis just to update our website. Wow. And the secretaries and the MyLapse thing and, yeah. you know, our, 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 I mean, we had to buy another $10,000 worth of timing equipment. We had to buy more computers. We had to buy more uh, a communication system was ten thousand bucks for the i five hundred. You know, one that had uh, we bought an AT and T push to talk communication system. We've got about ten grand invested in that. Um, you know, more vehicles, more snowmobiles. It's going to take fifteen thousand markers to mark this course. Um, you know, I bought five thousand dollars worth of orange A frames to set up make for signage going in and out of towns and that sort of thing. You must have an, I mean, an awful lot of uh, volunteers. Uh, how many volunteers approximately do you have uh, throughout the course? Oh, probably about five hundred. Yeah. Wow. And are the clubs are the clubs mostly involved in That's, this? In the town? Yeah. Yeah. See, that comes from the clubs. See, what we do is we go to a, a snowmobile club and we meet with them and we say, "Here's what we're going to do. We're going to come through your county, and here's the route. And some of it's going to be on your trail, and some's not." We will make a donation to your club if you'll work with us and provide spotters and help us with the marking and that sort of thing. And every club jumped all over it. You know, they were all uh, very eager to help. So, so is, each, is each club, uh, have you told them uh, to have their section of trail groomed or are they not to groom their trail so it's rougher? Well, we tell them to leave it alone. We'd rather not yeah. have it groomed. Okay. You know, if, you know we're, maybe 30% of the course is on Grant Aid Trail. 
but uh, we prefer that they don't because we're going to wreck it anyway. Yeah. And uh, it's a big advantage for the first sleds if they hit that thing and it's smooth as a whistle. You know, I mean, it's uh, we don't want that. We want. Uh, I just assume they just went out and just wrecked it before we raced it. Yeah. What about sanctioning? Uh, you're are you uh, ISR sanctioned? So, so are they? Correct. We're an ISR affiliate. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. And and uh, so who are, who are some of the popular racers that we're, that we're going to see uh, uh, in the in the uh, international class? Well, we well, have, you've had, you've, uh, uh, I should, I should clarify, you, you've, you've already you've already ran two two uh, races this year. Um, um, maybe a, a little recap of that and uh, of those two races, and and who who uh, expect to be top runners in in the I five hundred. Well, it seems like you know the same guys that were competitive last year are competitive this year. You know, and it doesn't seem to matter who you put the winners on. You could put them in wheelbarrows and they'd still win. You know, because they know what they do everything right and. Uh, you know, I've got to say, the winners aren't the whiners. The winners show up. They show up early. Their equipment is perfect. They they take what you give them, and they go out there, and, and they win races. And uh, and they don't blame their lack of success on uh, somebody else. They, they You know, they look in the mirror if they don't win and say, oh, here's what we got to do to win. But, uh, you know, we have the, the top drivers we had last year are still the top drivers this year. Um, there's a few more drivers Kind of that are competitive now with the factory teams, with the with the rule change. We have more drivers that have a chance of winning every weekend because of the the change in the product. But um, you know, Gabe Bunky is the probably the leader on players. Bobby Meany is good. Uh, the Faust brothers are terrific. You know, they won one race this year, won one last year, and they're very competitive and could win any weekend. Of course, uh, Arctic has. Uh, Zach Herfindahl and Wes Selby, and that's kind of they're carrying the flag for Articat. And, uh, you know, Articat has some other younger drivers like Lance Efland and some of those guys coming up who are very competitive too. So, um, you know, Polaris right now is kind of seems to have the, the, the most top drivers and uh, the sled that seems to be the strongest right at the moment, you know. Um, if it wasn't for Selby and Herfindahl, players would be running off with the show. But uh, and of course, uh, Yamaha has uh, a couple drivers. Actually, basically one driver that's um, very competitive. And, and I just I'm, I'm embarrassed. I can't think of his name right now. Um, it's just at the tip of my tongue. It's Kadu. They um, they have Ross Erdman and a couple others, but they're kind of uh, Right at the moment, the Skidoo team—they um, have a good sled. They're in there, but they—they're just uh, a few steps off the pace. You know, what I mean, they—they uh, need to get their act together a little more if they're going to win some races. And uh, not that they don't have a good sled; they—they they have got a great sled. I think they just need—you uh, know—they need to work a little harder on their their team effort and their their personnel to uh, to get to get to the top of the pile. And uh, Ri Wadena is the Yamaha rider. Yes, Great yes. guy, good rider, rides his heart out. I think he got second in the I-500 once, but Ri uh, led at uh, Pine Lake for half the race, you know, and, and uh, the track flew apart. And he got, I think he got fifth at Detroit Lakes. He was up to second at one time. I don't know what happened. He faded to fifth, but uh, um, Ri is a nice guy, a great rider, and... Uh, the, he's got good support, you know, and uh, and then we have uh, um, we have a young man from from Canada, uh, Ansu, 
uh, Kale Ansu, and he's on a Yamaha, and, and he's Amy winning Ansu this. Relative, yeah, he, uh, it'd be his uncle. Yeah. He'd be a nephew. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I've, I've uh, got one Dan, last question, uh, Gordon, and then I'm yeah, going okay, to no uh, bow out. Uh, sorry to have to leave. Um, Brian, do you think in the I-500, do you think you're going to see any of the, you know, back like back in the the old days, you used to get all the top snow pro uh, oval racers would cross over the Bob Eastmans, Duhamels. Everybody would give their crack at the I-500. Are, are, do, you, do you envision any of the top snow cross Riders wanting to, you know, make their mark, like the Tucker Hibberts, the uh, Ross Martins. Uh, any interest from them, or does it conflict with the X Games? Or well, I guess X Games is over by then. So, does it conflict with the race, or any interest that way? We um, we haven't had too many of those. We we've got some, you know, a fair number of former snowcross racers running our circuit. We don't have uh, too many of the of the top teams, and I think the reason why is they're afraid of getting hurt. And I think they also realize, you know, those guys aren't used to running down ditches at 100, 105 miles an hour. You know, they're used to top speeds of maybe 40, 50 miles an hour. So it's a whole different game, yeah. and they're out of their element, you know. And I would love for them to come and race with us and give it a try because I think they'd get addicted to it. And, you know, and they could, you know, make a lot more money winning some of our events. You know, the guy that won our first race at Pine Lake made 7500 bucks. You know, the guy that wins, if we get 100 sleds in the pro class for the 500. You know that guy's going to make thirty thousand plus manufacturers contingencies. You know could probably make close to fifty thousand. Wow. So, yeah. You know, hopefully we can draw some of them as you know more of them. Uh, you know, into our fold, you might say, as as we move on. But uh, like I seen Logan Christian yeah, I think raced at one of them, didn't he? Logan's Christian been running our circuit, yeah. And there again, I mean, he's a great rider, but you know, it's a, it's a different game. I mean, it's. Uh, Total different sled setup. Our races are long. Um, you know, uh, our races, you know, a hundred mile race through the bumps can take an hour and a half. And um, you know, they're used to running ten minutes. And, and uh, whole different uh, sled setup, different mindset, different. You know, it's. Uh, but you know, there again, I, I'm I'm convinced that some of those guys that win in snowcross could come over to our circuit and win too, because the same ingredients that it takes to win anywhere apply. Al, you got to go? Yeah, I've got to, unfortunately, i got to go, fellas. But, uh, Brian, really nice uh, chatting with you. Okay, Hal, I uh, appreciate you coming on and talking with uh, Brian and I. I'm going to continue to talk with Brian, and we're going to uh, talk about uh, maybe some of the, the best viewing areas in, in towns and uh, and his sponsors and his uh, contra- contact information and uh, the date of the event. So, uh, Hal, thanks a lot for coming on. Okay, and uh, thanks again, Brian, for uh, for doing this uh, with us. We'll be watching You're welcome. the race. Pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Gord. Yeah. Bye. Okay, Brian. So, um, um, obviously, trail conditions. Um, how, how's uh, how's the trail conditions looking uh, for the for the event so far? You're still a little. Well, away. we need more snow. You know, um, <clears throat> it appears at the moment we have enough snow to run from Winnipeg to Thief River, and uh, we're going to make it happen one way or another. And uh, you know, we have a backup plan right now. Our contingency is if it doesn't snow anymore. Uh, we'll race from Winnipeg to Thief River. Uh, we might do a, a, a one-day run up in Canada too. We're going to check that out this weekend, and then we will run uh, two loops in the Winnipeg in the Thief River area. So we'll have a four-day, 600-mile um, event one way or another. But it might not go south of Thief River. Right now, there's not enough snow to do that. But yeah. um, our, our deadline 
deciding what we're going to do is is January 26th. So it's two weeks away, and uh, you know if it, we could get a lot of snow between now and then. Yeah, for sure. And if we if we do, of course, we'll mark it and go to Wilmer. But uh, if we don't, it's still going to go. Yeah. Um, okay. Some of the some of the uh, most popular uh, viewing areas that the spectators can uh, can watch through through the, through the towns. Where where can uh, people uh, get a really good view of, of of the event as it goes by? Well, we're primarily ditch racing all the way from Pemina to uh, just north of Thief River. Then we get on the river, and then they won't see them much until uh, just north of the casino, and then they'll be back in the ditches again. So, um, you know, anywhere in a ditch where the course is rough is a great place to watch. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't want to be chasing the sleds, but if you can find some approaches, uh, some rough areas in the ditch, uh, it's, it's fun to watch. I mean, I mean, they come down these ditches, you know, 80, 90, 100 miles an hour through these big moguls. And, you know, the, the pro riders are phenomenal how fast they can go through the rough. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, um, let's talk about your sponsors. Who's, uh, who's, who's sponsoring your events, your, your, your series and, uh, and the, and the uh, International 500? Well, the title sponsor for the I-500 is the Seven Clans Casino. And uh, our next biggest sponsor would be the Woody Stud Company. And, of course, all four manufacturers, sponsors, Yamaha, Articap, Polaris, and Bombardier, and uh, and we have a bunch of other sponsors. We have uh, Amsoil is a major sponsor. Speedworks um, out of Minneapolis, they're terrific. The Hools, CNA Pro Ski Company, uh, Drift uh, Clothing gives our, our, all our crew clothing, uh, fabulous clothing. We're just uh, keeps us all warm. Uh, Ontario Snow Magazine, of course, is a sponsor. Stud Boy Studs, Fox Shocks, uh, Action Graphics. There's a big chemical company in Wilmer, West Central Chemical, as a sponsor, Simonson Station Stores. Uh, we buy our fuel there, and they um, got on board this year. Camoplast Tracks, Matt Tracks, of course, they're uh, you know track conversion company. Uh, there's a uh, Carver, uh, is a Carver Performance. They're a Fox Shock distributor and uh, rebuild outfit in Thief River, uh, actually in uh, just east of Thief River, or just west of Thief River there. And uh, Team Industries, yeah. which built clutches for the industry. So we have a number of really good sponsors. And, uh, of course, you know, the, nothing would happen without uh, the financial backing. Okay, so let's talk about the date. Uh, the uh, the four-day event, uh, when does it start? Second? Uh, right now we're going to start Wednesday, February 11th in Winnipeg, 9 a.m. Yeah. And um, so and, uh, and finishes on Sunday. Saturday. Saturday, okay, Saturday. And, yeah, the original uh, format is to finish Saturday, the 14th in Wilmer. Okay. And if uh, anybody needs to contact you, website, emails? Yeah, they can go to usxcracing.com, and uh, there's uh, an email list in there of uh, myself and all of our uh, our support staff, so they can email any of us and uh, with questions. And, uh, you know, if they have technical issues, uh, they can call myself or Scott Schuster. And we'll uh, we'll get them going. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Um, any any closing uh, marks you got uh, for us? Well, you know the the main thing is, uh, you know, I, I just I got to thank all the people, the hundreds of people who have stepped up to make this happen. Um, it, it was I was I was amazed by the support that was out there from the, like I said the clubs and all the individual people I met all along the way throughout the last two years. So hopefully the weather cooperates and we can get this thing off the ground and it'll grow legs and it can become an annual event again. Yeah. Oh, well, I wish you luck. You know, I, I, I come from snowmobiling back in the 70s, too, and uh, big fan of this event. Uh, 
Um, so I was, I'm just uh, stoked to see you, uh, you know, bring it back. I mean, I, kudos to you for uh, for bringing it back and uh, and uh, you know having a re- resurgence of, of cross country racing. It, it, it's tough. Cross country racing is uh, it's got its challenges uh, because of logistics, uh, but uh, when you can make it happen, they're they're exciting events. And you know, your, your weekend warriors, it gives a chance for the weekend warriors to get out there and uh, and actually compete. So it's a uh, it's a great it's a great uh, it's a great sport for sure. Well, there's something for everybody. You know, on our weekend events, uh, we have, like I said, we have 20 classes from 10-year-olds on up to 50-plus. And so we have it's something for everybody. And uh, so anybody can compete. Any model of sled pretty much can compete. And it's, it's racing like it's meant to be. You know, you're in the ditches, you're in the woods, you're on the lakes, you're in the rivers. It's, it's true racing the way it was meant to be and the way it started years ago. And many good formats have evolved off of that. But... Uh, it's it's uh, it's a true driver's race. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, Brian, I really appreciate uh, you coming on with us and uh, talking about this event. Uh, I wish you luck. Uh, I'll be keeping an eye on it, um, the, the results. So uh, I wish you luck and uh, good weather. And it was a pleasure talking to you today. Great. I appreciate your support. Thank you. That concludes this episode of the Snowmobile Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, uh, Brian is obviously a uh, a very well experienced uh, talker with the uh, with the media, uh, being with Articat, uh, so uh, he uh, he provided tons of information about uh, the past, uh, his racing career, and um, Articat and uh, his uh, upcoming race. Uh, so that was a pleasure talking to him. Uh, appreciate it. I have a bit of a head cold, so uh, um, I couldn't talk much. Uh, thanks to Hal Armstrong from Snowboard Canada Magazine and Stone Bear Television for uh, co-hosting. Uh, Hal uh, is really uh, up to date on uh, on uh, the vintage racing and stuff like that, so he knew uh, Brian Nelson, uh, you know, his, his stats. So if you need to contact uh, me, you can contact me at uh, stonewheelingpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, uh, this episode and all the other episodes uh, you can find on iTunes. Uh, just uh, search uh, Snowmobiling Podcast on iTunes. And when you do that, uh, you can uh, subscribe to uh, Snowmobiling Podcast and uh, all the episodes are up there. And uh, you can either stream them on your computer or you can download them right to your mobile device, uh, your uh, iPad uh, or whatever type of uh, smart device you have. And then you can play uh, all the episodes over uh, your uh, car, truck, uh, audio systems uh, on the airplane or whatever. And um, also uh, the uh, other uh, uh, platform I have is uh, SoundCloud, uh, which is uh, becoming quite popular. And again, you can uh, stream that or, and, uh, and you can also uh, download these episodes to your, uh, to your device. And uh, that's a nice, easy platform to, uh, to listen to. So um, I hope you uh, enjoy uh, all, all these episodes. There's uh, um, over, over a dozen of them now. And um, now that we're into the uh, snowmobile season, I uh, hope to uh, ramp it up and, uh, and, and get more episodes out. Uh, uh, I've got some, uh, some uh, emails out to uh, some people that uh, uh, I want to talk to. So this is Gordon Van from the Snowmobile Podcast, and we'll talk to you soon.